You're listening to Knowing Faith, a podcast of Training the Church. This is Kyle Worley, and I'm joined by my co-host, Jen Wilkin and JT English. On today's episode, we had planned to talk about something else, but we ended up talking about the doctrine of providence. And the reason why is because there were just some things that we had been having some conversations about. We felt like, wow, we're having a lot of fun talking about the doctrine of providence, and we're teaching about it in the training program on the week that we recorded this. So we said, let's talk about the doctrine of providence. And so today, that's what we talk about on the show. And I have to acknowledge, there's some language that's kind of technical in this episode, because the doctrine of providence can be really heavy lifting. And so we do our best to try to kind of step in and out of both the pastoral application of the doctrine of providence, but also some of the real big theological engine beneath the doctrine of providence. And we're going to work to put some things in the show notes that may help give greater clarity to some of the words that we use and some of the concepts that we introduce in this podcast. So we hope you enjoy the discussion. All right, what's new? Have you have you made it any further into Parks and Rec? I've watched the zero episodes, but after you after you what's the guy you called me? Tom Haverford. Mm-hmm. I looked him up and Wikipedia's exact description of him was something like a guy who thinks way too highly of himself. <laughs> <laughs> um I'm not saying it's a one to one comparison. It's analogous maybe. Yeah, there's definitely there's something there to search. Okay. okay. You should look into it. I've just been seeing a counselor. You've watched zero episodes? Well, I tried to watch I've told you I We recorded that episode like six weeks. What have you been doing with your time? I, that's a good question. <laughs> well, I, I've been watching a lot of West Wing. Okay. Again. How surprise, many times? Surprise. Five times through. Man, come on. Give it a break, bro. Distance makes the heart grow fonder. Like, leave all, it for All a West Wing fans who watch or listen to Knowing Faith, would you please at Kyle Worley? <laughs> <laughs> listen, I love the show too, but like, I can't come home after a hard and heavy day and be like, let me watch two cathedrals and just like vibe out. That's exactly what I do. <laughs> See, that is not cathartic for me at all. Oh, boy. Okay. Well, um, we had another episode that we had scripted out for today, and we changed our minds. It's theological and pastoral improv. Yeah, we just were like, Keeping you know what? On the edge of Let's do this. The Lord does not change his hey, mind. Hey, but what's the topic we're we going to do? Providence. The Lord knew. The Lord knew. And ordained. And ordained, yeah. Absolutely. I believe this. Yeah. I believe this. We believe this. Thank you, Lord. I hope so. Um, Okay, so we're talking about providence. And um, I actually got to teach on providence last night. I'm teaching on it again tonight for a training program. Uh, And we teach on it with... the doctrine of creation. So we teach creation and providence. And the reason is because we talk that God has made the whole world and he governs the whole world. Oftentimes talking about God making the whole world falls under the doctrine of creation. God governing the whole world typically falls under the doctrine of providence, but they're intimately related. And a lot of the core components, the nuts and bolts you need for a faithful doctrine of God as creator, you need um, uh, to bring up in the doctrine of providence. There's just a lot of overlap Mm -hmm. between those two doctrines. That's why we treat them together in the training program. And so let's just start really big picture. If you were going to offer a definition of providence, how would you define providence? What, or maybe even what are we talking about when we're talking about providence? I mean, the general idea of providence is how does God relate to his world? Like okay. in what, what is the relationship between the creator and his creation? Yep. 
So he created the whole world, and now that it's off and running, so to speak, he doesn't step away. He right. doesn't. He doesn't uh, kind of just let it go. He providence is considering how does he govern and rule over the world. Okay. So how does God govern and rule over the whole world? That's the question of providence. What like is the world operating on rails that God just set, and now it's just kind of it's driving on the track that He laid out? Is God intimately involved in the affairs of the world? Is He wrapped up in the affairs of the world? Is He surprised by the events that happen in the world? Does He determine all the events that happen in the world? These are all questions that are tied into the doctrine of providence, right? Well, and all these questions of providence are ultimately tied into the doctrine of God, right? Who is God? Is He King? Is He not? Is He is He sovereign? And Jen, we've talked about this. Is He omnipotent? And how do those things relate to each other? Uh, so providence is ultimately rooted in your beliefs about God. So let's talk, let's nail down some nuts and bolts of who God is. Uh, let's say specifically, like to kind of narrow our focus here, because we could talk about a lot. I mean, that's a, who is God is the biggest question. So let's talk about those parts of the, of the answer to the question, who is God, that are really helpful for thinking through providence. I'm thinking the incommunicable attributes of right. God. What are some of the key incommunicable attributes of God that affect the way that we view God's providential governance of the world? Well, I think you have to consider that he's infinite, right? That that that's going to impact um, all of the other incommunicable attributes. And in and when we speak of his sovereignty, there is an aspect of it that is tied to his being an infinite being. Um, he is infinitely. Um, there are no limits on his authority. Right. So uh, people often, I think, confuse God's omnipotence with his sovereignty, and the two uh, interact with one another, of course. But his omnipotence would be his his ability to act. Uh, that there are no limits on his ability to act. But then, in contrast, sovereignty would be there are no limits on his authority right. to act. And I think when you t- one of the problems with having this conversation in, in this format is we will only focus on sovereignty and it's an easier conversation i think to have if you've already focused on some of the other attributes uh, because i think just let's be honest this is an alarming topic for a lot of people and if we only consider sovereignty without without sort of setting ourselves up with oh you know what he's he's not just infinitely uh, able to rule but he's also infinitely good I mean, that's a pretty important piece for us to have in yep. view when we talk about the sovereignty of God, um, because people come to this question with fears of, am I a puppet? Right. Uh, and that's really the, the, the fear that lurks behind, or is what if God isn't good and this mm-hmm. is true? Yeah. And so I think if we can sort of get, get to those questions, I think you've already kind of touched on a little bit of just like, does the, is everything just determined? Is right. this determinism? Right. So I, I've often said, and tell me if you agree with this, Jim omnipotence is the doctrine that tells us or the attribute that tells us that God can do yeah. what he wants and sovereignty is the doctrine that tells us that God will do right. what he wants. Right. Would you agree with that? Yeah, I think that's it? good. Okay. Yeah, I think that's good. Um, some other incommunicable attributes that are super important for thinking through God's providential governance of all things, his omniscience. Yeah. He knows everything. Yeah. He knows all things. He knows all the yeses and all the noes and all of the maybes. He right. knows everything that is, Contingency, everything that isn't, and yeah. everything that could be but isn't. Um, so that's an important part of this. Another, t- the two maybe biggest here are that God is assay. That's, that's, I think that's, I think that's the one that governs all of the rest okay, of so, these. Okay, so talk about aseity real yeah, quick. Yeah, so aseity is just that God... <laughs> just going to stop real quick. Anytime that I hear aseity, I think about uh, who is that guy, the cartoon, who would be like, I say, I say, I say. <laughs> I don't know that cartoon. 
Is that part of Are the movie serious? Spinal Tap? Or? <laughs> okay. Wasn't there a cartoon think, character? But now that you say that, like I've heard that before. Yes, it's his, was it Coyote Jack? Is that oh, the- oh, you're talking about Looney Tunes. Yes, it's, yes, uh, yes. It's um, uh, Yosemite Sam. Yosemite yes, Sam. That is Coyote <laughs> Jack. Yes, 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 yes. So I, I think say, I say it, and I think that. Um, anyways, okay, that is a detour. <laughs> JT is losing it. Over- <laughs> no, 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 no. I'm thinking of another one, too. <laughs> I can't bring this one up, though. Okay. We need to go to Asaidi. Okay. <laughs> All right, talk to us about Asaidi. What is Asaidi? Yeah, so, and it's it sounds like a weird word. It basically means that God exists in himself and by himself. He is genuinely and truly autonomous without any uh dependence or reliance on his creation or on another for himself to exist and often we attribute that doc- or that doctrine that category to ourselves right that we believe that we are autonomous in ourselves and that i exist because i think or because i am or because i be and that's only true of god yeah god and, and this is if if i could just encourage people to get their minds around this doctrine as best they could this category for me has been revolutionary for every other category of the doctrine of god yeah. the creator creature distinction might be the most fundamental category in systematic theology to connect to to set as a foundation for how the creator relates to the creation i love that i say to you that god is uh that in he, himself in exists himself. by himself mm-hmm. yeah so we talk, sometimes mm-hmm. we'll say self-existent, self-existent and self-sufficient, and self-sufficient. Mm-hmm. right that he right. didn't need anything to start he's, he has no origin point that's right and no one does, gives him life but he no gives, gives life, life to all exactly mm-hmm. so he's self-existent self-sufficient and so, with i say to you also also comes eternality that's exactly right and when it relates to his creation because we're, we're trying to kind of uh, draw how these doctrines of creation and providence relate to each other uh god creates he makes the world but then he doesn't just let it exist he continually makes it exist okay so in other words i don't get to just continually he, he didn't just make me and now i'm living uh in my own self, autonomously, or in my own aseity, God is continually speaking this world into existence. Yeah. So when we talk about God as creator and sustainer, we're referencing both his self-existence and his self-sufficiency mm-hmm. in that phrasing. Yeah. Right. So when I think of maybe a, another P word for providence is preservation. Mm-hmm. He is preserving the creation that he continually speaks into existence. That that uh, First Corinthians or uh, Colossians one. Christ is upholding the universe mm-hmm. by the that word power. of his power mm-hmm. now. Like he didn't just do mm-hmm. it and then kind of set it off into its own, uh, uh, you know, time space continuum where we're now separate from God. But literally Christ is speaking me, you, my words, the, the sound waves into existence mm-hmm. right now. Yeah. So, uh, so we've talked about, okay, uh, Providence is an issue that involves the incommunicable attributes of God. It's tied to our doctrine of creation and that broadly providence is asking the question of like, how does God continue to be involved in the world? That's mm-hmm. kind of the big picture. Mm-hmm. So let's, let me try to, let me just throw out a definition of providence. Great. Um, and then we can just say like, oh yeah, we feel good about that or I change this here. If you have problems with it, I did just teach a hundred people that this was <laughs> what providence was. So if you were in that class and they have a problem that <laughs> I might find that out right now. Okay. Just as a heads up, doing theology together all the time. Mm-hmm. Providence, God's continued care and governance over the whole of his creation. I think that's right. God's continued care and governance. And I think the reason we got to talk about care and governance is oftentimes we think about providence, especially in our little subculture that really values God's sovereignty. We can talk about it as if God is kind of the divine chess master Mm -hmm. and that he's viewing this as kind of just like, we are the pieces, he's moving them around to get to the end for which- Like a puppeteer. Right. Mm -hmm. And we divorce the whole fatherly care that is just tied into the very nature of God. 
So I think we have to say care and governance. Anything that you would change or add to that definition? God's continued care and governance the, over the whole of his creation. Uh, I don't think I would change anything. I think that's a really good definition. But governance uh, matters in terms of, because there's different forms of government. Yep. So God isn't governing a republic or a right. democracy. He's governing a monarchy as a sovereign providential king. Yeah. And so just making sure that the governance category That's good. is a is kind of a, a, a kingly right. dynasty. Because if we're going to use a word that has all of kind of like po- modern political connotations, mm-hmm. then we might hear governor or governance. It's, it's, not, a, it's not a libertarian yeah, that's government. Good. That's good. Well, and this brings actually up one of the questions I had in here, which is talking about the key positions that kind of are on the spectrum of viable options for Christians, right? So when we talk about some of these things, um, and you've heard us talk about this before, when we jump into a conversation, we want to acknowledge that there's kind of a spectrum on some of these issues. There can be a spectrum that exists of going like, these are all faithful ways of approaching this question. They're not necessarily all equal because we think some of them are better than others, but they're all like, they're all faithful options. Like if you took one of these positions, it would be like, okay, yeah, a lot of Christians have taken that position. That may not be our position or my position, um, but these are some of the options. And so I want to just kind of list out what I would consider the big four key positions on the uh, the question of providence. And then I'll just ask JT and Jim where they fall and we'll see where the conversation goes. Um, The big four are uh, libertarian free will, Molinism, theological compatibilism, and theological determinism. Those are kind of the big four yep. positions on dealing with the question of providence. Libertarian free will can roughly be said to, to say that I am in no way caused to choose either A or B. I, prese- I possess what might be called radical and harder versions of libertarian, harder meaning stronger versions or stronger, uh, strongly stated versions of libertarian free will argument that nothing really forces me, nothing external forces me to choose or mm-hmm. to make a choice, that I am a free agent and can choose to do A or B without compulsion. Okay, so this is when we talk about free will. Oftentimes, this is what people imagine when they're talking about free will: is the ability to choose A or B under no compulsion from anything externally. Mm-hmm. Okay, libertarianism. Other position: Molinism. Now, Molinism is tricky, guys. Okay, Kyle <laughs> <laughs> Worley is tricky. Stick with me. Molinism is roughly the idea that God possesses knowledge of not everything that is, not just knowledge of everything that is and everything that isn't, but everything that could be. This knowledge is called middle knowledge. It's not just all the yeses and all the nos, it's all the maybes. So this view, which has actually come into greater and greater prominence in recent days, mm-hmm. it was put forward by a guy who really didn't get a lot of acknowledgement in his time, Luis de Molina, but now it's kind of come in vogue again mm-hmm. and you can see it out there. And uh, Especially in kind of philosophy circles. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so like a lot of famous apologists, yeah. Uh, like William Lane Craig uh, would be a, a Molinist or he would uh, argue for God's middle knowledge. So anyways, essentially the view is this. Since God knows not just everything that is or everything that isn't, he knows everything that could be, this means that God chose to actualize a world because there's all these possible worlds that could have been and God saw every possible world that could have been and chose to put into effect or to actualize the world that preserved the maximum amount of human free will with the least amount of collateral damage from evil. Okay? It's a very, very tricky position. But it's a position that exists to try to answer the question, how can humans have true free will, or true in a libertarian Mm -hmm. sense, while also not making God culpable for all the evil that ensues from a free will? Okay, there you go. If you want to know more about Molinism, 
Google it. <laughs> no, no, I'm just kidding. Don't. Whatever you do, don't do that. If There's, there were a webcam in here right now, you would see JT being super sassy. Yeah, yeah, he was. He was giving me a lot of thumbs down, a lot of sour faces, whatever. That's not my position, so I don't have to defend it. Theological compatibilism <laughs> is third on the spectrum here. Um, theological compatibilism um, is roughly the position that we are free to act in accordance with our desires. So we, we act, God kind of determines the course of the world in accordance with our desires, our desires that are either broken by sin or redeemed by grace. So we can act freely, but we act freely in accordance with our desires. Mm-hmm. And that's either been broken by sin or redeemed by grace. Yep. Okay. Theological determinism. This is the harder form of argumentation, okay? Which theological determinism suggests that everything that's done, like every atom that moves and every object that exists moves the way it moves because of the superintendence of God. Mm-hmm. If, you, if you've met a Calvinist within the last, like, the, like a brand new Calvinist, <laughs> right. they probably hold to that position. Right. right. And listen, theological determinism is on the spectrum. Right. You can hold that position. And typically when people think about Calvinism or sovereignty in particular, that's their default assumption is right. that that is God's view. That yep. is the way that God is uh, orchestrating the world. Yeah. When you hear those positions, where do you feel like, oh, I kind of live in that space? I'm theological compatibilism. Okay. I think the will is entirely free, but only free to act in accordance with its nature, its desires, and and what it is. So uh, I'm not free to choose to be a bird. Right. Because I don't have the nature of a bird. But that doesn't mean my will isn't free. My will is free to Mm -hmm. act in accordance with who I am, who God has made me, and my nature. Yeah, that's good. So, you know, I've lived long enough to have moved through several of these views. (laughs) Right. (laughs) And I would say I am not yet ready to wholly turn my back on on position number four in favor of number three. Mm -hmm. I'm not sure what I'm giving up if I do that. You know, that's the question that came up last night in the training program too. Yeah, and I'm sure you probably have a really good answer for it, but I would say that like in my uh, understanding of the topic, I'm I'm stuck a little between number four and number three. Number three appeals to me. Mm -hmm. Um, Like I want to go there and that sounds like Jonathan Edwards to me. And and Three. Yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. And and I, I think it is... Uh, logical, like it fits with my experience mm-hmm. of the world a little bit, a lot. Um, but I also, I think I still like the certainty of point number four, mm-hmm. right. the clarity of yep. it. Uh, but I don't like the um, the inflexibility of it. Have you ever wondered what is God's heart towards you? In this noisy world, God's heart beats hard with love and mercy. But how can God share his heart with us when he doesn't have our attention? You're invited to spend 100 days discovering the beautiful, merciful heart of God with Overflowing Mercies, a new devotional by Craig Allen Cooper. The Lord is not ashamed of you or quick-tempered toward your faults. Each one of your weaknesses, faults, frailties, and failures does more to arouse God's love than to stir up His anger. If you could fathom in some small way how warmly God truly feels about you, the faintest grasp of His immeasurable affection would reduce you to tearful wonder and heartfelt gratitude. As God's mercies are new every single morning, overflowing mercies will continue to be a constant well of refreshing comfort, encouragement, and strength. It's perfect for personal quiet times, family and dinner table devotions, and small groups. Let this devotional help you get intentional, stay connected to God, and continue loving others. Order your copy of Overflowing Mercies, 100 Meditations on the Tender Heart of God today at moodypublishers.com or wherever great books are sold.
We live in a possession and money obsessed culture, but what does the Bible say about generosity? In his new book, A Short Guide to Gospel Generosity, author Nathan Harris shows us that the answer to our obsession with possessions is turning to the gospel, because only in the gospel can we find the type of life transformation that enables us to turn our focus from ourselves and back to others, to give generously, and to follow in the way of Christ. To learn more about the book, visit GuideToGospelGenerosity.com. That's GuideToGospelGenerosity.com. And, and, and part of the distinction between theological compatibilism and theological determinism, and again, we're dealing with providence, and it's hard to not slip into being too technical here. So just want to acknowledge that this is a place where it, it's very it, – it's, it's a tough spot. But one of the things that distinguishes uh, theological compatibilism and determinism uh, in both of those positions and what unites them mm-hmm. is they both want us to understand that God's causality – is not like our causality. Right. For some major reasons that we already mentioned in the incommunicable attributes of God, which is that God is not confined to space and time. Mm -hmm. See, we typically have adopted a view of the world, either you can call it Aristotelian or Newtonian, where you want to do something, like you want to cause something, it's very much like one, two, three, four, five. It's very much a linear space-time view of causality. Like, you know, I'm holding the bottle right now. I have a water bottle in my hand. And to put it down... I actually like put it down. Mm-hmm. But like the way that I cause things, the way that I act with objects is not the way that God acts with objects right. because he's not confined to space and time. And so uh, the reason that that's so significant is because a lot of times when we're thinking about God's determination or his providence or his causality in the world, we immediately start to think about God causing things in the way that we cause things, right. which is not a way to think about God's causality because he's not confined to space and time. Does that make sense? Yeah. Well, and I think it helps. I think I think the reason that I, I pause, like I don't want to mm-hmm. say I'm number mm-hmm. three, right. is because I, I, I came up through... Um, through church settings where I would say there was a low view of God preached, mm-hmm. not intentionally, but there was a higher view that we, we talked way more about man than we did right. about God, right? And and so then when that shifted for me, um, sort of the watchword that I've carried around in my head um, is any any view, any teaching that elevates the role of man and diminishes the role of God mm-hmm. should be should be questioned mm-hmm. pretty seriously and 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 I think that was you know at least for where I was at that time in my spiritual development was a really important watchword for me to carry around but now I you know I'm I, I'm probably uh, 15 years away from from yeah. Yeah being in those earlier environments. And and I'm at a place where I'm willing to say, you know what? The sovereignty of God and the will of man exist mm-hmm. together in yeah. a way that I can't I oh, can't sure. reconcile yes. with clear speech. But I, I would I would look at it, one of the things that's helped me try to articulate this to others was the idea that anytime the divine touches the human, that that touch point is going to involve mystery. Right. And mm-hmm. I know that it can sound like a cop out to appeal to mystery to the person who wants to have perfect language around these things. I don't feel that way. I think right. part of being, I, that's where faith comes into play. Yeah. But um, that's kind of where I am with it is I'm, I'm willing to allow, I, I don't want to give up free will for the sake of articulating divine sovereignty or vice versa. I want to say, let's have a, a little, let's take a humble position of saying we're not exactly sure how these two things interact. Right. And I'm not sure God's willingness in compatibilism is the same kind of our willingness. Right. That's, that's what I'm saying. I think Kyle is, is helping me with this. 
because and and but you're right to say too because these positions even if we like even if we felt like man we all landed on the same page at the end of this we would still all say there's a tension in the oh yeah for sure yeah i like the passage i go to a lot because a lot of times we're talking about sovereignty we go like people expect you to go to the epistles Mm -hmm. um but in john chapter six when jesus is talking about the the bread of life that he is the bread of Mm -hmm. life there is something that's really profound about the way that he talks about it there that i think captures some of the tension and keep in mind this is the son of god talking about himself and salvation uh and let me just read a little bit of this to you so jesus is is speaking uh, and it says in verse 35 jesus said to them i'm the bread of life whoever comes to me shall not hunger and whoever believes in me shall never thirst But I said to you that you have seen me and yet do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. I mean, listen to that tension there of Jesus saying, whoever comes to me shall not hunger and thirst, whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Verse 37, all that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever mm-hmm. comes to me I will never cast mm-hmm. out. That's that tension of like, that's a tension of providence in relation to salvation where Jesus is saying, who's going to come to me? Everyone that the Father gives me. Well, how do we know who that is? Well, it's everybody who comes to me, mm-hmm. right. and I'm not going to turn any of them right. away. That's that tension right there. You've got the same tension in Genesis 45 with yeah. Joseph speaking to about his brothers. He says, uh, uh, Joseph is talking to his brothers, and he says to them, uh, I'm your brother Joseph, whom you, whom you sold into yeah. slavery mm-hmm. right? into mm-hmm. Egypt. Don't be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here for God sent me before this. And right. so he's saying, God did this and you did this. Mm-hmm. And he's holding the tension, I think, perfectly. Or yeah. Peter's sermon on Pentecost where he looks out across the crowd and in verse 23 of chapter two, this Jesus delivered, uh, this Jesus delivered up according to the, uh, the definite plan of foreknowledge mm-hmm. of God, you crucified yeah. and killed. Whoa, yeah. hold on there. Yeah. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed. Right. So like there it is, that tension of like God is providentially guiding all things and yet there's responsibility. Mm-hmm. I think it's Tozier. I can't remember where where it was that, who says um, the scripture is clear, God is sovereign, and man is responsible. Yep. Yep. And then just like Mike drops Done. and walks away. And you're like, yeah, I mean, that's pretty much it. If I'm not looking for a way to live in the tension between those two ideas, then I'm missing the thrust of scripture on it. And, and really what Kyle's referring to, and I think what you're what you're getting at here, Jen, too, is, is thinking about the willingness of God versus the willingness of humans. It goes back to what we tried to say at the beginning is our doctrine of aseity yeah. is what informs our understanding yeah. of the willingness of God yeah. and the willingness of man. I am not ase. My will is bound and limited and mm-hmm. finite. God is. So it's, we're not, when we say theological or uh, compatibilism, right. we're not trying to say it's the same kind of will. Right. It is a right. creator's will. We will as limited will. humans. Yes. He wills and as, as an unlimited. And after the fall as fallen, broken humans. Yep. Right. And so if we right. want to, we can talk about this in a number of different ways, but related specifically to salvation, we're talking about dead people. Mm-hmm. Right. A dead person can't, uh, is a dead person's will free? Yeah. Free to be dead. Free to be dead. <laughs> yeah. And so this is this is this is Luther's idea. This is Edwards's idea. Mm-hmm. Is the will is absolutely one hundred percent free mm-hmm. to act in accordance mm-hmm. with its nature. Yeah. A dead person's will is to only be dead. Yeah. They need a new option presented to them of yeah. regeneration, salvation, new life. And so, do we freely come to God? Yeah. 
right. because he makes it happen. Exactly, mm-hmm. exactly. And see, and this is the best place to tee it up uh, in terms of thinking through sin and grace. And, and I feel very strongly about this. You can you can tell that because it's I'm, coming. I'm gesturing. <laughs> he, has a, he has a John Calvin shirt they on. They can't well, tell that you're gesturing. Well, but, so yeah. here here's some here's a really interesting thing. The uh, Augustine, who is certainly the first theologian that has to really do battle on this front. Keep in mind that so many of the early church battles, right, the battles of the church fathers are not around these kinds of issues. They're around issues of Christology, around Trinitarianism. Trinitarianism. That's like, that's the battleground. Um, But as things move forward, your first big theological discussion on this uh, historically is Augustine and Pelagius. And in that conversation, the real issue is not divine sovereignty and man's responsibility. It's not God's will versus man's will. It's a question of grace and sin. That's right. And um, this is this is why when conversations about God's will and providence and will and human responsibility stay in the abstract of, does God cause me to pick up the bottle? We don't find as much help in the Bible as we'd like to because primarily, and the church fathers were clear in saying this, primarily the conversation is not about this philosophic tension between man's responsibility and God's sovereignty, but between grace and sin. That's exactly Mm -hmm. right. Um, uh, How does sin affect the human heart and our will, and how does grace redeem that? And interesting to note, in the first edition of the Institutes, Calvin treats election under doctrine of God, Mm -hmm. um, taking a different approach than the church fathers did. This is in the first edition of the Institutes. Uh, he, uh, He treats election under doctrine of God, making it more of a philosophical question about God's sovereignty and human responsibility. But by the last edition of the Institutes of the Christian Religion, it's in doctrine of salvation. Because he t- he took a, a turn where he was on a trajectory of probably considering how much we see him quote Augustine and reference Augustine, um, he probably I would say as he became more and more acquainted with both the tension of the biblical text and his study of the church fathers began to see well maybe the issue is not primarily a question of our theology proper in our anthropology, our doctrine of God and our doctrine of man. Maybe this is better teed up within the context of scripture's account of sin and grace. Mm -hmm. And that's actually the trajectory went on. And a lot of contemporary Calvinists have almost completely abandoned that. Mm -hmm. Um, So give us a practical example of how that changes the way we think about it. Well, so a lot of times when we talk about this, and you can, I can hear it last night in the questions that are asked, and I know what people want, there is, we really want to keep this conversation it bothers us to think that we might be puppets. Right. Mm-hmm. Like it really does. Or it bothers those who have kind of come to the, the, like, you know, the theological determinist side to think that we might be elevating the role of man. Right. And so there's this, then everybody's just like yelling at each other like, mm, oh, you just want free will, but, you know, you're a terrible person. Why would you even want free will? <laughs> and then there's other people going, oh, that's just the view that, you know, we're all puppets. And scripture is not playing out in a way to answer all of these technical questions about like, okay, like I would just say this. The Bible is primarily not concerned with answering the question of whenever I choose what I'm going to eat for lunch today, how to make sense of that. Mm -hmm. It's just not. Now, I'm not saying that God is not purposeful in it. I'm not saying he's not orchestrating all things. I'm just saying the Bible is not primarily concerned about that. And what is it primarily concerned? It's primarily concerned about how on earth did I go from a person who only could do brokenness and sin to a person that now can choose righteousness. 
And how does Providence interact with that idea? Our view of Providence interacts with that idea because if we if we take a view that keeps it kind of in this structure of um, this big philosophical question that we never get to the heart of the matter, where Providence is saying, you get to do this because God intervenes, mm-hmm. saves you, and gives you a new set of desires. It's why you see uh, such a strong antinomian strain, uh, yep. uh, strain among Calvinists is because they actually are thinking about sovereignty and responsibility in a way that's not conducive to the witness of Scripture, I think. Talk more about that. That. Well, because uh, essentially, oh, I see what you've been. Doing no, that. I didn't even know we were going to head here, but I would love to talk more about that. Well, if we if we keep the conversation about God's sovereignty and our responsibility at that level, then we are in that kind of space between a doctrine of God and a doctrine of man, or what God is capable of and what I am capable of. Then we're never um, interrupted by the fact that God has given us a new set of desires that we're now to act freely in accordance with. How orally, this is so right? good. So, like. I like. I don't think it's too small a th- thing to say. This is what Paul said. I think is saying in Ephesians two ten. Talk about another place mm-hmm. where there's tension. You have been created in Christ. We are for his work, we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Mm-hmm. So Paul said, "What You're, you were dead in trespasses and sins. You were what you were bound to a set of broken desires, but God made us alive in Christ Jesus. What you've been given a new set of desires. So what now? Ephesians two ten." walk in these new set of desires, Mm -hmm. do the good works. Well, whose good works are they? They're the good works of God that he prepared beforehand, but you should walk in them. Yeah. Right? That's right. So anyways. So Augustine's definition of grace, justification, sanctification is God doing for us that which we could never do for ourselves and giving them to us so that we can actually walk in them. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I I would even say that the creation account shows us a pattern of this that you have first God saying, let there be light, Mm -hmm. which is what, you know, when more new creations, he does the same thing. He shines light into our darkness and we acknowledge, we are able to see our sin for the first time, right? But then, whereas the creation account opens with God being the one who acts, right? Then what happens? He creates the humans and he delegates acting to them. Ruling and reigning to them. I think you see a picture there first of justification where God speaks light into darkness and where there was nothing, now there's Mm. something. And then it moves to um, where God acts and man acts. That God, God is God is working out dominion through His people, and, and I think that's you know we're ta- you, you have a, a sovereign God ordaining that the humans will will fulfill this role, right. but then the humans actually have work to do as a part of that role. Absolutely, absolutely. Kevin Van Hooser has this great quote. He has a lot of great quotes. This is one of them. He says, the doctrine of providence directs us to employ our freedom in the faith that God will weave our actions and reactions into the drama in his own good time and in his own wise way. It is trust in God, not the ability to control that allows for spontaneity. I love that. Yeah. That we can trust God. We can live risky lives because God takes no risks at all. Right, he's weaving our actions and our inactions into his overall plan. We're not responsible for superintending everything that we do. God is going to do it, but it's like what Augustine says: "Love the Lord your God and live as you please." Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Because if that's there, you can live free, knowing that you know what your loves have been reordered, and there's a sovereign God who is not going to allow you to thwart His cosmic purposes and plans, which include you, but are certainly not limited to you. And Calvin would say, would, would say something very similar. He would say, ignorance of providence is the ultimate of all miseries. If you really believe that this world is up to you and that you're determining your existence, yeah. what your future is, what your past is, then there is no room for grace. Right. And that is miserable. But 
knowledge of providence, Calvin says, is the highest of blessedness. Mm. Knowing that God is gracious, interacting through us, inviting us to be participants in this story, there is nothing more wonderful. Right. So this is a perfect tie back to what we're learning in the Samuel study, because if there is a an overarching message for Samuel, it is God is sovereign, but mm. not just God is sovereign. God is your sovereign, mm. that God is king, right? And this is what Israel misses. And what do they do? They run to self-determination. They say, you know what we want? We want a king like the other nations. We want rule on our terms, which is the same thing that Adam and Eve said in the garden, essentially, just rephrased here. Um, And interestingly, that's what they stand accused of when Samuel hands them over to the Saul that they've asked for, the ask of their asking. So is the way that it kind of the wordplay that's there in the text. And he says, this is 1 Samuel 12, 12. And when you saw that Nahash, the king of the Ammonites, came against you, you said to me, no, but a king shall reign over us when the Lord your God was your king. Hmm. And if there's anything that we do with greater frequency, I don't know what it is, than to pray, my kingdom come, right. my mm-hmm. will be done. That's right. And, 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 and when we talk about the sovereignty of God, again, it's, it's what you're saying, to make it about this secondary question of, did God determine that I would eat Cheerios this morning for breakfast and to overlook the greater issue of, Am I in submission to the right. king mm-hmm. and right. seeking to align myself with with his his kingdom coming and right. his will being done is to is to uh, really to to engage in vain disputes. It is. We're often only thinking of providence and sovereignty in this moment, like right. the present tense. But when you change the conversation and talk about providence and sovereignty in a future tense, I think I th- it, it has helped me significantly. So let me just tell you where uh, the doctrine of providence, if Calvin's right, that, that it is that the highest of blessedness has helped me. It is, I think it's the most deeply pastoral and ministerial doctrine that's available to mm-hmm. Christians in terms of who God is and what he's doing in the world. So uh, whenever I talk about providence, I share a story, just a story from my family. Uh, it was, gosh, it was almost six years ago now. Is that right? Yeah. Six years ago, uh, my brother-in-law was diagnosed with what's called acute lymphoblastic leukemia. Uh, So we were told that he was going to be put on a very aggressive treatment plan of chemotherapy and that we were going to come out a few days later to help with that plan, help get him back home and take care of him for a few weeks. We got a call basically the next day saying, get here immediately. He's taking a turn for the worse. We uh, got on a plane. We were living in Louisville, Kentucky at the time, got on a plane, flew to Dallas, met Macy's brothers here, flew from Dallas down to Houston. And literally walked in the room as Sam was taking his last breath. Uh, And I know that as I say this, there's probably people who are listening who maybe are walking through a season of suffering right now or Mm -hmm. who have recently. And so I want to be as sensitive as I can to that. I I don't know that I've been in a moment uh, where I felt like it was just a gut punch in the the wind in my lungs just being taken out of me. As I walked into a room with three siblings uh, who were watching their brother die. Like at that moment. Mm-hmm. And my wife just cries out, get up, Sam, almost instinctively. Just get up, like get mm-hmm. out of the bed, take another breath. Everything's going to be fine. Let's continue fighting this. And he couldn't, he, he passed away right in front of us. So it was just a moment of intense grief, intense suffering. But over the next few days, it was the doctrine of providence that became my consolation. Um, I don't want to say in any way that God caused uh, death. Mm-hmm. Death is an intruder and an right. invader into our world, but he did somehow passively allow it to happen mm-hmm. because of our sinfulness and because of a broken world. But when you begin to frame sovereignty, not just in present moment, but also future reality, the doctrine of providence tells us that one day there will be a resurrection of the dead. 
and that Jesus is bringing his kingdom to bring it back to your point, Jen, of your kingdom come, your will be done. One day it will come. Mm-hmm. And if God isn't sovereign and if God isn't providential, it might not. Mm-hmm. Right. But since he is, it will come. And so as my wife walked into that room saying, get up, Sam, one day Jesus will return and say, get up, Sam, mm-hmm. and he will. Yeah. And that is just such good news. I mean, that's yeah. the good news of the gospel mm-hmm. that Jesus Christ is the sovereign ruler and king of the world yeah. who will one day bring the arc of history full circle to back to his throne, his kingdom, and his dominion over all things. Yeah. I, I don't know that we're going to be able to add anything to that. Well, may, maybe not add, but just I just want to maybe pastorally encourage people who are listening to this who are either walking through seasons mm-hmm. of suffering now, mm-hmm. maybe who will in the future, is is in those seasons, don't think of God as some kind of uh, maniacal uh, puppeteer mm-hmm. right. doing some, moving some kind of chess pieces and, and bringing about suffering for you. Yeah. But I will say this, as, as my family has also been walking through a season of suffering this year, and Providence has been, again, another a warm blanket for me, is a reminder that it is in these seasons that he's shaping and conforming us into the image of his son providentially and sovereignly in ways that we'll never be able to see. Mm. But in the future, we'll be able to see his sovereign fatherly hand and his care and provision for us in all things. Yeah, that's good. I think the last thing I would add is just as those people, I know a lot of people who listen to this podcast are probably teachers of the Bible. um, And there is no excuse for teaching this topic without considering your listeners. Yeah, right. And uh, and then just for the average person listening, there is no excuse for dropping the doctrine of sovereignty on someone who is in the midst of suffering. Yeah. Right. Uh, the Lord is gracious mm-hmm. to teach us the comfort of that doctrine often across a lifetime. Yeah. And you're not going to do it in a soundbite. Yeah, in 10 right. seconds in a hospital room. Yeah. And so, um, and even to t- tackle it in, in the format of a podcast, I think it is challenging. Oh, yeah. And we've only, you know, touched the surface of, of this idea. And so it's a doctrine to be handled with just great care and, and, and always combined right. with compassion for your listener. Yeah. And so, um, I, you know, I hope, and I think we were able to do that today, but if you missed that somehow mm-hmm. in what we were saying, yes. then you have not heard our hearts behind this. We don't view this at all as just an academic discussion. Yeah, the no, good, the sure. good news behind providence isn't just that God is providential, but that he's also trustworthy. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. And good. Mm-hmm. And we tell uh, students in the training program with some of these court, some of these big doctrines, we say, you know, we talk about these things in the light so that we can stand on them in the darkness. That's, That's right. So good, right. Not so that we get to the darkness and we yell it at one another, but we whisper it mm-hmm. with our presence yeah. and we stand on it. Yeah. Um, yeah. And uh, you're right. There's from both of you. Those are so good because so often this doctrine as shameful as it is, encourages arrogance and hubris uh, when it should humble us. Mm-hmm. It, it, it is, it should be the most humbling doctrine. Yeah. Mm-hmm. For more information, you can look into the show notes in the podcast description. We'd be honored for you to leave us a podcast review on iTunes or wherever you find your podcast. You can find us online at trainingthechurch.com. You can find us on Instagram and Twitter by searching Knowing Faith. On our next episode, we're going to look at one of the most well-known stories in scripture. And we're going to ask, do we actually see what's happening in this story? See you next time. Grace and peace.